All right. Welcome to the Progression Health Podcast, Episode 8. I'm here with Pac. So that's a, a, an abbreviation for his full name. He's from Greece, and uh, my Greek pronunciation isn't as good as I'd like it to be. Um, so I'll let Pac introduce himself, and uh, we'll kick off the podcast from there. Perfect. Um, yes, my full name is Patrick Losandrelexpractakis, but everybody calls me Pac, including my Greek friends, and that's been my nickname for a while. And it's, uh, it's, it's a name that is very intimidating to the eye, but when you actually try to pronounce it, most people will find that it's, it's relatively easy. Uh, but that said, back, back it's just total fun, and that's what I, what I go by. Thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate the opportunity, and I'm looking forward to our discussion. Right, yeah. You remind me, actually, of, uh, you know, Benjamin Pukulski, the Canadian bodybuilder. His, his, the fake back. <laughs> the fake back. We have the real pack now. He's actually been in the trenches and done the research. Maybe you could combine and he, he would have the, uh, the practical experience and you would have the, the theoretical, something like that. But uh, yeah. Um, and yeah, no, I remember I remember seeing Ben Pakulski being referred to as, uh, as pack. And I remember thinking, hey, that's my name. But uh, no, in all seriousness, there, I bet there's plenty of packs out there. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this pack, t- tell us a little bit about like who you are. You know, I know you worked with SBSS, which is uh, shredded by science. So really like top organization and, and uh, resource for anyone in the health and fitness industry. And obviously you've done research, you have a PhD. So just tell us a little bit about your background and um, how you ended up so, in England as well. For sure. So I'm, I'm currently a coach at uh, Stronger by Science, strongerbyscience.com. Um, as you said, great resource for, for lifters and for people that are interested in the, you know, understanding the why behind a lot of, uh, behind anything lifting and, and nutrition in the context of lifting related. Um, I just finished my PhD at the University of Solent here in Southampton, uh, England, um, where I studied the minimum effective training dose uh, for one repetition maximum strength in powerlifters, essentially, what is the least a powerlifter needs to do uh, to get stronger? Um, I investigated the concept as a whole rather than trying to identify a specific dose or find the dose, like the, the amount of sets and reps, etc. And um, I, aside, aside from being a coach at Strong by Science, I am also uh, a lecturer here at the University of Solent where I teach uh, various uh, sports science related um, subjects, including research methods uh, in the context of sports science. And at the same time, I have also uh, been involved in uh, an R&D sort of job in a non-sports science uh, environment. And that said, my research focuses around strength, uh, hypertrophy, um, as well as strength sports and understanding um, characteristics of strength sport athletes. And I just like researching stuff that uh, I, as a lifter and other lifters, find useful and interesting. So I do not make my living directly, at least, off my research. So I do not, um, I do projects that I like, that I enjoy, and that I think the lifting community will benefit from. So I don't publish as much as other academics. It may be three to five papers per year or so. And I, to answer your question about when, uh, 
me being in England. I left Greece when I was 12. So I, I, I was born in Athens, Athens, Greece. Left Greece when I was 12, moved to Germany uh, near uh, the border with Switzerland. Had a very small uh, town, lived there for seven years or so, lived in Munich as well for a year, and then um, moved to the UK, England and Southampton specifically to pursue my bachelor's degree, which, is, which was in uh, fitness and personal training which essentially is sports science plus some practical components. So that was a Bachelor of Science in that. And from that, uh, I got into research, started publishing, did a few research projects, and then uh, started my PhD directly. So I didn't do the, the usual BSc, MSc, PhD, or BA, MA, whatever. Um, yeah, and that's me currently in Southampton. As you can see, with the leftovers from the pandemic, there are barbells in my office because that's where I used to train and yeah that's me I guess very interesting great so you've got a nice mix of uh experience um across your background it's brilliant um so you've done uh, a PhD would you recommend uh doing a PhD to people who are interested in research in academia or would you recommend a master's or just what are your thoughts on that because I think it's a great route but I haven't done a PhD myself so I think that I was fortunate enough to be able to do so to be able to do a self-funded PhD. That was that was great. The fact that I could go down that route, um, which allowed me to select my topic with more flexibility. Obviously, it's not like hey, do a self-funded PhD and you can do it in whatever completely. Obviously, there needs to be some agreement from the university and, the, and your supervisors. Um, and I was fortunate enough to meet, uh, to have great a great supervisory team. Supervisory team. Um, my main supervisor was Dr. James Steele, aka James. And then after uh, James was the other James, James Fisher, Dr. James Fisher, also James. Um, so I was I was fortunate enough to to have a really nice setup for my PhD, which is not often the case with everyone. Not saying it from, um, you know, oh, getting a bad supervisor sort of perspective, but if you are doing a PhD that is not self-funded, you may find yourself um, studying something that you are you are interested in, but not, you know, extremely super 100% in it from the get-go, which can be a bit of a, uh, of a pain as you reach those final months or final year of your PhD where things intensify and you're already there for two to five years, depending on whether you're doing it part-time or full-time. Um, so if research is uh, something that you want to do and academia and being involved in academia is something that you want, a PhD I think is almost essential. Um, but at the same time, if you do not want to become a researcher per se, or you don't want to be involved in academia at that level, you know, doing research and becoming a professor, et cetera, et cetera, um, you can, you don't need to, to do a PhD and it might be best for some people. I know that there is, you know, somewhat of a prestige or um, a, a certain, you know, status attributed to, to, to a PhD, but at the same time, the cost and the, the, the effort and the time commitment and the potential you know, the opportunities that you might miss out on by doing a PhD, if you're a practitioner and somebody who does not want to do research, 
I think these are all things that you need to consider. You may be much better off doing a master's, which will still allow you to you know, do research. You have to do a thesis, at least in most um, UK universities. So you will have to do that. And in sports science, I'm not sure about other uh, disciplines. So you will still do research. You can still be involved in research projects in your university and meet people and, and say, hey, I, I do want to do some research, not recreationally, but not become a researcher and, and still have uh, plenty of time available to, to pursue your, your actual career and, and practice whatever it is you want to practice. Um, and if you do a PhD, it's important that you understand what that entails and what you're going to get out of it. So for me personally, even though I'm not going to become, uh, or at least for the time being, not going to be a researcher uh, in terms of my profession, the PhD does help uh, with the coaching side of things. So, you know, it does allow me because I'm not an elite lifter um, or shredded, and it, it does allow for some further credibility. Obviously, the last point was uh, jokingly mentioned. And um, I do want to pursue a career in academia to a certain extent, maybe just as a lecturer, um, which, which I'm currently doing as well. Um, but yeah, there are other perks to it depending on your overall setup. Um, but I would urge everyone to, to have a, a serious thing about it, consider the, the timelines, consider the effort, the money, um, and the university policies um, and so, so on and so forth, because just jumping into a PhD can can backfire, especially midway where you start realizing that ah, maybe this is not what I want to do, or I'd rather be working full time than doing this, or ah, I'm not really that interested in it. How will it benefit me? It's not that it will open as many doors as some people think. That was it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. Um... It's funny, yeah, you touch on you're not shredded or whatever, and it's like you have, like, you know, you, you couldn't have more credibility than a PhD, especially, like, in the fitness industry, especially the, the, the study you've done, the minimum effective training dose. But someone with abs or with a cool Instagram profile might get more, you know, of a, uh, more, have more reach based on such, like, a superficial sort of approach to health and fitness, um, which is completely backward, but... That's, that's the way things are. And here we, we're here talking about the science. So that's, you know, we're spreading the good word. <laughs> uh, I think as, as practitioners, it is important to have some sort of balance. So obviously, you know, the being shredded was a joke in common. And that's something that I, I could potentially do if I, if I wanted. Well, not be shredded as a, like a bodybuilder, but get a picture with the abs. But at the same time, I do believe that in the field of sport, uh, sports science and in the in our particular field of strength and hypertrophy, walking the walk to a certain extent, no, not saying you need to be a bodybuilder or a powerlifter, but engaging in some sort of training and being in the trenches in that in that sense uh, does make things better and does give you some actual credibility if you combine that with your academic credentials and your you know um, knowledge etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So just being if I was to just have a PhD and not have the coaching experience and the, the personal experience being in the gym and lifting and competing and stuff, I think that would still, uh, that wouldn't allow me to have a, a complete profile, if that makes sense. Yeah, it'll, it'll do anyone in the health and fitness industry no harm to be the best 
uh, kind of like coach, but also like practitioner that they can be. So what, however strong they can be with their time and their resources, you know, that's great for them. Um, and if they're not shredded, that's completely fine as well. Um, and then also trying to have a blend of the, the research and the science will put them, you know, in a really good place to be well-rounded and work with lots of people because, uh, not enough people exercise and, and we're, we're really trying to get people to be healthier. Um, so just kind of touching back on the fitness industry. Um, what, what do you think is the importance of science in the fitness industry? Um, and then obviously, uh, with SBSS, you, you do a lot of science work. So what's the kind of the work that you do there? So just to clarify with it, with SBS and my work there, I work there strictly as a coach, um, and coach clients. So there, I do not produce any content or have any, I'm not part of the SBS team. I'm part of the SBS coaching team, just, just, just for clarification. So, um, I believe that science, of course, has a has, has a place in our field. I mean, it would be funny if I said it doesn't, but uh, I, I think it's also important to 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 understand science and understand what science is really trying to to achieve here. Something that is often uh, being you know misunderstood by not only practitioners, but 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 sometimes it seems that even some scientists themselves kind of lose track um, because of all the, the, the politics and the social media, et cetera. So we are trying to get closer to, to, to the truth here and, and, and understand the why behind, behind things. Uh, but, but at the same time, in order to do so, we must remain cautious, uh, open-minded, and be willing to change our stances and positions and not be too dogmatic. So um, I believe that science, especially for, for you know, hypertrophy and strength, uh, will allow us to understand, to better understand how to do things, how to optimize, what works, what doesn't. Um, but in order to do so, we have to approach science and treat science in, in an appropriate manner. So just, you know, taking limited evidence and presenting it in a very fancy and absolute, you know, way to, to get views or, or to, 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 to bring people or to show how, oh, yeah, we're scientists, we're PhDs, we're this, we're that. Um, I think does can sometimes do more harm than good. Uh, and at the same time, I'm not fully on board with uh, the other extreme of, oh yeah, what the scientists know, it's very limited, it's very this, it's very that, it's all about your experience in the field. So science and experience together uh, combined, especially, you know, in the, the context that we're speaking of, uh, in, um, can allow us to to, to start understanding things uh, better. I lost my train of thought there being the, the end of that sentence because I was, it, it's, it, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately, how there seems to be this sort of schism between you know, practitioners and, and scientists where it's either one extreme or the other, when in reality, we can learn from the field and obviously using sound scientific principles Take that experience, um, take the scientific data available, combine those, and then have a truly evidence-based approach to things. But yeah, science um, is extremely important to, to, to what we're trying to do. Uh, but at the same time, its limitations and um, its limitations need to be recognized. Obviously, that will depend on the topic and what we're talking about. Yeah, I like what you said there about having an evidence-based approach. So. 
that evidence could come from your own personal experience, from working with clients, and then also from research. And you kind of weight it accordingly, depending on how much evidence there is and how much experience you have. Um, so speaking of working with clients, can you just talk a little bit about coaching? I feel like coaching is like one of the most underutilized things nowadays. Um, you know, we're kind of like going into like a digital age where we're using a lot more computers, a lot more than we have before. And there's a lot of potential to help, you know, uh, improve our health. For example, yeah, I have like a Fitbit on here and, you know, how many people have a Fitbit, but they don't know how to use it, you know? <laughs> so it's like, yeah. if we can get coaching from more experienced people, especially when a lot of people, you know, they, they get their source information from poor sources. Like there's so much misinformation out there. Um, what, what do you think is the value of coaching? And can you just uh, speak about your coaching as well? Yeah. So, and just just a side note again, strongerbysangelo.com, the coaching that is offered there is not, uh, there's a team of coaches and it's not that uh, there's a team of, of, of great coaches and people specializing in different areas. If anybody's interested, it's not, it's not just myself. And have a look and see if that's something that can potentially interest them. That said, um, I think coaching is something that can be of a great benefit for, for people that want to not only uh, have uh, be held you know, accountable and, and stick to a particular training program or nutrition nutrition plan, but also to better understand uh, why, how, how and why uh, you know, uh, they, they, they can progress and, and get better, not only in the gym, but also improve uh, certain you know, dietary habits and, and, and overall habits that may further enhance their, 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 their training performance or the physique development or whatever. I think it's, I'm not sure if it's underutilized or overutilized. I, I haven't looked at any of the data and I'm only speaking from, from personal experience. Um, but I, I do find that again, even in coaching, there are, there are people that do not do coaching justice because they don't deliver a service that is thorough enough. And they, they, they sort of use coaching as a, as an excuse to not as an excuse as a way of making some some quick money and and you know producing or, or sending clients training templates that are not highly individualized as well as not engaging in a infrequent infrequent conversation with those clients. I believe that coaching it's not that I you know let's let's take nutrition for example. It's not that I possess some sort of magical macro nutrient calculator or calorie deficit calculator or calorie surplus calculator that um, you can't find uh, online by yourself. But uh, having that sec second set of eyes uh, on your, you know, trend weight or um, how things are progressing outside the gym and inside the gym based on how much you eat and adjustments made every week, um, as well as the accountability factor can help one uh, reach their goals faster or faster, sorry, reach their goals um, period. Um, but that obviously depends on thorough communication, on developing that, establishing and developing that relationship between coach and client and being, I don't want to say mentor, but, but, but being a coach actually, being a coach beyond just the numbers and the, hey, 300 grams of carbs, 70 grams of fat, 180 grams of protein, X amount of calories. And I think that that's something that is not done by a lot of coaches, which on one hand um, 
I understand from a time availability perspective, but at the same time, I think it's doing a disservice to the people that do take the profession uh, seriously and provide a thorough, uh, a thorough service. Because as you said, many people will utilize and leverage their credentials or marketing to offer services um, presented as coaching. Uh, but in practice, they don't really reflect what, a, what a, an actual coach should do. Now, for training, I do think that, that things do get a bit more complicated and the coach's input can be, can be really, um, really beneficial for somebody, especially if they are lost in terms of direction. We live in an era where there's plenty of free templates available. You, know, you can go to liftfold.com, download 150 different hypertrophy or strength uh, programs. You can uh, plug your numbers in and there you go, here's your training. Uh, but often people find that they are stuck or don't know exactly how to progress because of there's so much information, so many different pro progression patterns, periodizations, uh, schemes, and, and ways to do things where they, 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 they kind of feel lost. And that's where a coach can come in not only <coughs> and not only uh, help you get to that PR or get to the total that you want, but also um, teach you along the way of, hey, this is how things are being adjusted every week. Um, oh, you had a week that was uh, harder because of, you know, exogenous stress. All right, we will adjust this and this and that. Uh, find what works, what doesn't, depending obviously on other variables too. And leave you at some point, be on your own after you finish your collaboration. You know? Because most people at some point will end, you know, will stop coaching. I do have clients that I've worked with for years, for like three years plus, and, and other clients where we work together for three to six months. And after that, they're able to, you know, continue and for, for whatever reason, uh, even, even if they've made amazing progress, but then take it, take it and just continue on their own because they've learned through that process. And yeah, I think coaching can, can definitely benefit people that are feeling lost or are not sure on how they can progress and they can learn from that process, but also advanced lifters. So that, that does come a point where some cookie cutter templates may not cut it for you. Uh, or you may have to, uh, you may not be able to do your own programming because of other factors. I am guilty of that myself. When I coach myself, there are times where I'll make the wrong calls because of emotional reasons. I might say, hey, I'll go for that extra set, even though I shouldn't go for that extra set. Or I will try and lift X amount of weight, even though I'll be you know, at the top range of the RPEs that I should be, should be aiming for. Um, and having a coach there can take that thinking away from you. And by placing your trust on, on, on another person, um, you can mitigate some of those some of those issues, as well as have a second set of eyes, more um, analytical set of eyes on your training. But it will not necessarily more analytical, but a different sort of set of eyes that could be as analytical, but coming from a different perspective. Um, that may allow you to see that, oh, I hadn't thought of trying this and that. And, potentially implementing a, sp a specific training technique or doing things differently, which as an advanced lifter could make a lot, a lot of difference and can take some of that pressure away from you, especially if you're preparing for a competition. That was, that was a, a rant response. I hope uh, I, I covered you there. Yeah, no, all good. And, uh, you know, I can cover you. Progression Health is taking on clients. So if you need, if you need coaching pack, I got you. <laughs> um. <laughs> no i'm joking i'm joking but uh so i actually really uh value 
coaching myself and also helping other clients because a, a big thing I see is there's so many misconceptions and like myths in the health and fitness industry. I'm not sure why, but uh, I love when a client comes up with like, oh, what about this detox tea or what about, you know, German volume training? And it's like, okay, let's go back to the principles here. You know, let's go back to the basic. Um, and then also a post I saw recently on Instagram was really cool. It was like, as a coach, your job is not to uh, make decisions. You're essentially the advisor to the president. The client is the president and you just advise them and you say, here's the consequence of this decision. Here's the consequence of th this decision. You know, you decide for yourself and um, I'll support you with whatever decision you make. I, I really like that idea because it takes a lot of like pressure off the coach to like produce results because ultimately it's the client who does the work. Um, we kind of just like you said, like we kind of mentor um, and I guess collaborate and then give them a second set of ears and eyes and an analytical view of, of what they're going through because to change your health is really challenging. So um, mm -hmm. I have and a nutrition coach and yeah, it helps me a lot. Yeah. And it's, and that's, that's one thing I stress to all, to all clients. I love geeking out and getting people stronger and bigger and leaner. I like being the guy behind the scenes that helps them make adjustments to, to get to help them get them there. Uh, but a lot of it also respond, uh, depends, uh, a lot of the progress depends on the feedback and the communication. So I, I try to speak with, with most clients daily, um, obviously not on the phone, but via text, and via voice messages. And aside from, in, uh, instead of doing a weekly uh, check-in, one, you know, seeing how the week went, I, I prefer speaking to, to clients as, as much as possible, obviously within, within reason, um, to not only get feedback from, from daily sessions, but, 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 but to get to know them better uh, as people and, and then understand how the sessions went and what else might have affected their performance or nutrition, uh, which then makes my, uh, the, the ability to do my job, uh, well, increases the, increases the ability Makes my job better. I don't know why I try to say it in a, in a fancy way, but yeah, it helps me. It helps me do things uh, the right way, at least the, the way that I do the right way. Um, yeah, so it's it's really a, a back and forth. It's not that uh, you sh if your coach comes up to you and presents himself as the almighty guru that has the answers and here's the answer and don't deviate from this and don't discuss it and this is uh, five reps, uh, three rep sets. X amount of weight, no questions asked, this particular exercise, then you might need to look somewhere else. Um, obviously, you know, there, there is a, there, the, your coach must have some sort of, a certain level, not, not of authority, but should provide you with clear cut directions, obviously be open to, to listen to your feedback and make adjustments. But, you know, if, if you have the other extreme where the coach just says, hey, just which exercises do you like to do those? And, um, yeah, we're good. Then okay, that might be a bit too relaxed. Yeah, I like that approach. You're you're thorough and you know very supportive and, and available regularly. That's invaluable, especially when someone's starting out in coaching or they're going through a particularly challenging time. Uh, that support can be so so useful. Um, so speaking of your coaching, you had one client Nick who was competing in the British Masters. This can tie in nicely with uh, the whole reason <clears throat> that we're here today talk about your research and the minimum effective training dose um so i think that's a really good example could you look could you talk a little bit about that and i saw mm -hmm. some of the the training he was doing 
and it's like no you can't get strong that's like that's not enough that's you know that's too little but yeah he, he won right or he did very he, he performed very well with that approach uh he won and he still so just 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 a bit of background nick was uh was a friend now um also based in Southampton, uh, somebody I got to know before being coach for Strongly by Science, just, just for the record. Um, and uh, somebody who I personally met at the gym here, and he is a guy who weighs, at the time weighed 115 kilos. So that's around, uh, well, I can tell you exactly, around 250 pounds. Um, and he was a guy that I kept seeing at the gym like quite big, quite thick upper back, uh, big arms. And I kept seeing him deadlifting. And I saw that he was able to pull near 300. He was pulling near 300 kilos um, a few times, but like he didn't seem like he knew what he was doing, if that makes sense. Like he was pulling the weight and with relatively okay looking form, like nothing looked uh, extremely weird. But at the same time, like he wasn't bracing. He, he wasn't, he didn't have a bell. Or he just he just he was grabbing the weight and just lifting it off the ground. So we, we go to talking and I said, hey, potentially we can work together. You can try powerlifting. He wasn't he was squatting at the time, but like he was squatting with a, a little pad on the bar, not depth. Again, not nothing too 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 bad. But I was like, there's a lot of potential there. And his bench at the time was like near 160 kilos, just touch and go. And we we started working together and just by working on his technique and doing specific training to powerlifting. Uh, two years later, we competed both in uh, Northern Ireland and uh, well, and then in England. And he came British champion twice for the M1s, for the 120 class uh, M1s, but he currently holds the British record for the deadlift at uh, 340 kilos. Uh, at 46 years old uh, for the M1 120 class. So if you go on British, that's for the IPF affiliate of the, uh, the UK. If you go to BritishPowerlifting.org or whatever their website is, the, the, the record still stands. And he did, you know, as a guy who was um, barely squatting to, to do depth and using the pad and all that stuff, he squatted two, 280 kilos in comp, uh, quite low and quite easy as well. So he had 300 on that day, but we were built, he also holds the total record. I forgot that. Uh, so we were building towards the total record. So the attempts were conservative for squat and bench. Uh, so he did squat 280 uh, and bench 190, also comfortably, then proceeded to bench 200 kilos the, the week after in the gym. And then uh, got, um, broke his own record on his second attempt on the deadlift and the total record, and then got 340 as a third one as a sort of a bonus uh, PR and, and, and record. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this is to, to highlight that he is somebody who works as a bus driver and does long shifts, 10, 12 hour shifts, um, obviously including breaks, et cetera. And there were weeks where he was coming to the gym after those shifts, late at night, 9, 10 p.m., uh, with the next day being a 6 a.m. or 5 a.m. wake up time day. Um, and we had to make sure that we adjust the training to not only fit his anthropometric characteristics, meaning that you know he was a heavy guy, not uh, 
you know, in his 20s, heavy, a lot of muscle, um, and at the same time, limited recovery capabilities. Um, so we needed to, to find a way for him to progress and get better on the power lifts while also allowing for sufficient recovery and not just saying, hey, we will now hammer you with training volume because that's what we should do. And he, he pulled, you pulled up, um, I saw on the, on the document for this episode, you pulled up the, the, the link from Instagram and I was, I was like, wow, you did a lot of scrolling there. But that's, that's great because uh, I can like now look at it and say like during his 10 week prep. So the prep before, um, that was the first, uh, the first British nationals that he did where he, he, he won again. He, he was doing, um, so weekly, an average of four uh, working sets for the squat, uh, six working sets for the bench press, and three working sets for the deadlift uh, at an average load, like percentage of one RM um, being 85, uh, 85 to 86%. And uh, squatted once a week, deadlifted once a week, and uh, bench press twice a week. And still managed to not only, so he increased his total from that year. That year, he, he hit a 770 total. And then the next year, he increased his total training in a similar fashion. So he, he was already an elite lifter. And he managed to hit an 805 total, which is the current, the current record for his weight class and age category, by doing you know a similar style of training. And yeah, and, and again, it's noteworthy also that he was, he was not a full 120 kilo lifter. Uh, he he weighed in at 116 kilos without any water cuts or you know anything. He was eating. He had he had breakfast before weighing. So that's I think also noteworthy. Big shout out to Nick. Big love to Nick. Uh, really good good friend. And yeah, I'm actually hoping to see him soon. Amazing. Yeah. So that actually just is a testament to the power of of coaching and you know your coaching ability. You know, pack the champion maker. <laughs> it's 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 most it's mostly it's mostly the athlete i i i'm happy to have helped and i've been there to you know to, to do some of the behind the thinking behind the scene thinking but you know nick showing up and every athlete showing up to every session after work uh, i was there at the gym with him sometimes you know but going to the gym after 10 p.m being sat all day on a bus and then and, and loading 250 plus kilos on a bar and squatting it um takes does take some uh some guts to, to keep it uh pg, PG absolutely yeah it's like as a coach you're more it's the the, the kind of uh it's more like a friendship almost you kind of you never do the work for somebody but you're always there when they need that kind of that support or guidance or just maybe even motivation sometimes um mm. yeah and then you can get amazing results like that when you you know really uh work effectively together so for somebody who isn't a powerlifter or who's interested in powerlifting or just isn't as advanced as someone like nick um how could they apply the minimum effective training dose to their own training what would be like a, a kind of an effective way to start using it um little correction it was 810 kilos not 805 so i just saw that i loaded that up and um i'd say that for somebody who's not a powerlifter and obviously the majority of, of, of people that you know you, you may work with and uh, a lot of the people that I work with are not competitive powerlifters and 
the concept of the minimum effective training dose, i.e. what's the least you can do and still make progress, I think uh, is still a useful concept for them too, even though my PhD was, at least part of my PhD was specifically a part of it. Uh, now, I, I, I would like to, to, to point out that it, it will be goal dependent. So, you know, if you're looking to get bigger or get stronger or, or both, that will obviously uh, alter uh, the, the dosing or, you know, the type of dose uh, or the amount uh, rather, um, of what's the minimum or what's the least you can do and still make progress. Um, but I'd say I want to, to promote the, the concept rather than I say, hey, do X amount of sets and reps for, for people that may not be part of this, but uh, they're doing less than you uh, can potentially, doing less than what's optimal can sometimes actually uh, be considered uh, better for your overall progress and again it's if you're unable to uh, you know if you're not sleeping well or if you don't have a, a lot of time available um or you know working hard and stress is high uh, forcing those long training sessions or attempting to do those longer training sessions and, and, and failing and then feeling as if you're missing out on gains um maybe you know it kind of kind of backfire so i just want to, to promote the fact that hey We've, we've done some research and we have found that you can you could still make progress and get stronger at least um, by doing uh, much little than, than, than people originally thought and we did that research in powerlifters um, who are if anything less less prone to huge increases in strength so if they can improve in just a few heavy sets per week uh, then you average person who just wants to be you know, fit, big and strong for, for general health purposes and doesn't want to be Mr. Olympia, uh, you can probably do so uh, as well. So as part of, of the project, we, we did a literature review and essentially looked at the literature and, and saw, tried to find out what the, the current available scientific evidence has to say about the topic and saw that for recreationally trained individuals, so not powerlifters, doing um, a single set of six to 12 repetitions two to three times per week per lift uh, using 70 to 85% of one RM. So a load that is relatively heavy and going close to close or to uh, muscular failure um, can result in significant strength increases. And based on the literature that we, we already have, we, we know that uh, you know, single sets can also be failure, can also be beneficial for muscle hypertrophy. Now, Again, keep in mind that we're not talking about what's optimal here or what's the most you could do and get the most, you know, uh, progress, but you can still make meaningful, uh, you know, either that you can still make meaningful progress by doing just a few hard sets per week uh, per lift. And there's actually um, a study that we, we are currently uh, trying to, to, to publish. It's published as a preprint uh, where we... It was spearheaded by, by James Steele. And um, he, we looked at the data from a chain of, of gyms over in the Netherlands. They, they have chains, they have gyms in the UK as well and other countries called Fit20, um, where their whole thing is that you do a 20-minute workout at the gym with a personal trainer guiding you through the workout. But you do 20 minutes per week. That's it. So that we're not talking about minimum dose here. We're talking about ultra minimum, minimum of doses, like as, as little as possible. And uh, what they, they do is they, 
they do four, um, sorry, six exercises, one set each, four to six repetitions with a controlled tempo to failure uh, on specific machines. And we had data for around 6,000 participants from those gyms and saw that even with 20 minutes per week of um, focused, close to failure, or no, to failure uh, training, these people were able to make uh, meaningful strength increases for over a year uh, after, after which they started uh, plateauing, but they were still training upwards. But it's important to note that we're talking about 20 minutes a week. So even that was still able to do something. Now, if you're a, a highly advanced uh, trainee or you're, you're, you're somebody who's been lifting for years, Make sure you do more than 20 minutes a week. You know, do a couple of two to three sessions, you know, 30 minutes or so each. Uh, have a few single sets that are hard enough, you know, five to 10, five to 15 repetitions. And you'll still be able to make a meaningful progress at least for six to 12 weeks. So I think that's, that's really important for people to know, not necessarily implement unless they need to, but you know, there will come a time where you will go on holiday or you'll enroll in university or you'll get a new job or you'll have a kid instead of freaking out and saying, oh, I don't have time for my six sessions or five or four two-hour sessions per week. You can remind yourself that, hey, there's data out there to show that even with um, a few hard sets, I can still not only maintain my muscle mass and strength, but also I might also increase my, you know, strength and muscle mass. So I just, yeah, getting the concept out there is it's more important to me than saying, hey, we managed to, to, to give you specific, exact guidelines. I gave some rough guidelines, you know, and some ranges, uh, but, but the idea that, hey, you can still make progress doing less than what's optimal is, is important. That's amazing, yeah. So something I see with a lot of people is they have like this black and white approach to just their thinking in general. And I think the more flexible you are with your health, so your nutrition and your training, the more progress you can make. You know, if you have a kid, if you get a new job, if you do a PhD and you can only do 20 minutes, do your 20 minutes and make the most of it. You know, if you have two hours, you know, make the most of that as well. I guess it, it feels like the overarching point is to be just, you know, as efficient as, as possible with whatever time you have to make the most progress you can. Um, and it's interesting as well. A question I get a lot as a personal trainer is, <clears throat> How often do I need to train? And I'm always like, you know, two sessions a week done right um, is a lot for most people. You know, of course, for intermediate, advanced, elite lifters, they might need to do more. But, but two is great. So the fact that you have research that 20 minutes a week is effective is like amazing. That's like, I nearly want to go and try that myself and just see what could I do if I just gave myself 20 minutes. What? Uh, what progress could I make? Or could I even just maintain for a couple of months and put that time into maybe like nutrition or something else? So that's really interesting. I'll send you the, the preprint. So this is, this is publicly available as a preprint. It hasn't, uh, it's, it's going through peer review now. Um, and yeah, I'll send you the preprint so you can potentially link it down. Um, so that there is a full text available with the analysis, with all that data. So it's not just me saying, hey, we did something, said something there. Um, but I wanted to, to to mention that 
as part of the PhD, there was a survey where we talked about part, we talked with powerlifters about their previous experience with minimum minimum dose training, and only thirty six percent had um, actually engaged in, in a, such an approach. But uh, like the rest, the the, the near seventy percent that uh, that had not uh, engaged in minimum dose training, when asked if why they, they said you know I'm not afraid of not making enough progress of potentially losing strength, but when they were asked if they would be willing to, to try such an approach, if there was more evidence around it, more, more you know, more data around it, they were all very, uh, the, the 98% or 99% of those that hadn't experimented with the, the minimum dose approach before said that, yeah, there was more evidence around it, I'd be happy to. And now there is some more evidence. There's obviously a long way to go to, to, um, to explore the, the, the concept fully, uh, but there, there's some evidence to, to hint that, hey, we can do less and make progress. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of like, I think it's like the Paratio pr principle. It's like the 80-20 rule. 20% of what you do gets you kind of like 80% of the results. So if you could just find out what are the most effective sets you need to do in your session, you could focus on them, save a lot of time. But um, you have to be open to that. There'll be trial and error with that as well. Um, so... Currently myself, I'm, I'm training for a half marathon going completely the oh, opposite nice. way. Um, and, uh, I'm trying to stay powerlifting so that I'm in a position to do a competition at some point next year. Um, mm -hmm. how do you think running or kind of cardiovascular work would affect strength training? How do you, how, how would you kind of fit those two together? Do you have an experience with that? Um, and where does kind of the minimum effective dose fit in with cardio work outside the gym? Um, so I am, I'm, well, I'll, I'll, I'll make a brief note about myself personally. I, I like walking a lot. I walk a lot. I walk a lot. I'm not obviously a competitive walker, but I walk an average of 12 to 15,000 steps a day for the past years. I, I don't drive at the moment, at least. And so I walk everywhere, walk or cycle. And, um, I think that, that some sort of, uh, cardiovascular training, uh, not necessarily aerobic fitness specific training can be beneficial for um, lifters and for people who want to get bigger and stronger um, because being healthy is is important to you know the journey of becoming bigger and stronger. That said, I do work with a few clients that do. Uh, like I have a client who uh, is is getting stronger and bigger. Uh, but at the same time does like 130 kilometers of running a week uh, and some, some crazy stuff like that. Um, and, or maybe, you know, maybe that was the, one of the extreme weeks, but has like an average step count of like over 40 K uh, steps a day, including running and walking, and moving around. And, 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 and you know, so that, that's somebody on the other extreme of uh, the spectrum. So I'd say that, you can definitely combine, uh, you know, running or aerobic fitness uh, focused training um, with powerlifting and with strength training. There, but there may be a few variables uh, from both nutrition and the training side that you, you will need to, to optimize. And uh, I'd say one is if you can separate your sessions. So if you can have training with, you know, your lifting on a separate day. In comparison to your your aerobic training, that would be a first a good first step, and adjusting. So that's where minimum dose approach may be coming handy. 
So if you're now focusing, if, if I assume that the half marathon is sort of a priority at the moment, right? But at the same time, you don't want to lose, you know, your strength. So you can focus your recovery capabilities. You can place, you can allocate some of those, your resources, let's say recovery resources. You can allocate those to your running and say, okay, I will now do a minimum dose. I, I, will, I will adopt a minimum dose uh, approach for, uh, you know, the squat and the deadlift for my lower body uh, where, you know, the running will obviously affect that. And you can do your specific high load, you know, single or one to three repetition work there, just enough for you to still make progress, but without it being super fatiguing to the point where it's taken away from the running. But, you know, such, such an approach would still allow you to make progress, some progress at least, definitely maintain, but definitely, most likely maintain, and um, still allow you to not optimize fully, but take your, your, your running training, um, uh, you know, a level higher. Um, and you could potentially do a bit more on your upper body, still using a sort of a minimum dose uh, approach, but you know, potentially doing a bit more because you won't have to deal with the soreness and and having you know you don't want to be doing sets of ten and fifteen on squats multiple times a week uh, and then running three to five times a week too. Uh, but where so and that was something cool that we found in in, in our studies with powerlifters where they were doing mostly heavy uh, single repetitions. So they were doing you know, for the squat, two single repetitions a week, and the other group was doing two sets of two, two singles a week plus two sets of three um, after those single repetitions, and their soreness scores were extremely low. So after after doing such type of training, even though it was potent enough to to yield some increases in strength um, and some meaningful increases in strength, it wasn't uh, hard enough to to make them sore because there wasn't a lot of volume and um, as, as a result, they were scoring like zeros and ones on a six-point scale for muscle soreness. So for you specifically, doing uh, singles and back of sets, so doing a single on the squat and then two sets of three, uh, after that single using 80% of whatever you use for the single. So hitting, um, so doing a single at, let's say, RP 9 to 9.5 and then taking a percentage of that and doing a couple of back of sets for further practice. And allow you to still make progress, but also not wake up the next day and be unable to do your running and progress progressively increase your running uh, training to compete in the half marathon. So that's another. That was a great example actually that you that you brought, and that, that's a great way to show how a minimal dose approach can uh, fit into somebody's training plan. Because the, 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 there's there's many people that will uh, that get into training and lifting recreationally that often pick up other physical activities, physical activity. Um, yeah. So like you may, some people may start doing a martial art or pick up cycling or swimming or playing a sport and yeah, being able to know that, Oh, you know, I've been lifting for five years. I've, I have a, I've finally hit my four plate squat goal. Now I want to start BJJ or I want to play a bit more basketball with the guys, you know, th three times a week. Will I now, how will I fit the two hour training sessions? And like, you don't necessarily need to, you could, you could turn it down a bit for, for your lifting work, but by doing 
a few hard sets and making sure that those sets are, are hard enough and maybe some back and forth as well, you can still make some meaningful progress, albeit not optimal, uh, and still focus on whatever else you focus on. And as I mentioned nutrition as well at the, at the beginning. So nutritionally, I'd say you, if there is another sport involved, and especially if you're talking about a sport that is different uh, in nature and uh, you know the energy system is involved in the recovery, et cetera, et cetera, and the length of the sport, uh, optimizing things on that end and potentially allocating your carbohydrates differently throughout the day would be important. But I'm not going to get into that with much. Yeah, we could a lot really... of talking. We could really go into, you know, a huge different episode on nutrition as well. But uh, that was amazing. And just some things I'm thinking of for clients is like, even if you are someone who works a sedentary job, you know, like at a, a computer or like a bus driver like Nick, um, you can still, you know, make progress. It's, it's like it's all about planning, really. Or if you're a runner who does 40,000 steps a day, uh, you can still build muscle. You can do so many things with the proper plan. It's amazing. It's just, I think you have to be kind of open-minded to it, not be dogmatic, not be like thinking, oh, it's all or nothing or black and white thinking. Um, and then you can really, you know, be flexible. And if you're willing to sacrifice a little bit of like, we'll say optimality or, you know, how optimal your training is for just to for progress, um, you can do so many, so many things with your health. Uh, yeah. Pretty interesting. Yeah, for sure. Uh, for sure, and uh, it's yeah, it's, uh, just getting people off the train that oh, unless I do the best, the best, whatever, the most voluminous and excuse me, the most specialized program, I won't make progress. That's not necessarily training. And actually, you know, in your specific example, if you were trying to still force uh, really high volume training sessions. Uh, I'm not saying it would happen for certain, but there's a high chance that you would not be able to sufficiently recover from the lifting because of the running and because of the running and, and from the running because of the lifting. That makes sense. Like if you were trying to push both things together, one would affect the other negatively and you would kind of either, you know, you could potentially get injured or it's burn out or not, uh, not make any meaningful progress in uh, either department. That's not said with certainty, um, but you know, I know it will always depend on other factors as well, experience, et cetera, PDs, this, that, the other. But you know, it's a good example of where taking your step, taking a step backwards might be two steps forwards. Yeah, exactly. Like um, I'm young and I've loads of years ahead of me. So just because I'm currently focusing on uh, the running doesn't mean that um, I can't make strength gains or hypertrophy gains later on down the line. Right now, I'm just maintaining. Maybe I'll make a little bit of progress. Um, and actually, it's, it's very interesting. I really i am enjoying my training more because there's less pressure on progressing. I'm just maintaining with the, the workouts and then the running I'm trying to progress. So um, I guess periodize, we're kind of talking about periodizing your, your, your training and that's you know how that can be very, very useful. Um, you just mentioned injuries. So something I was thinking of for somebody to try and apply this where does injuries come into it? Because, or sorry, not injuries, but like uh, avoiding injuries because you're trying to progress, you're trying to go heavy, but technique is also very important to uh, reduce the risk of injury. So would you talk a little bit about that and how to avoid uh, getting injured and then how to maintain your technique? So I would say that 
Um, I'd urge everybody to watch. Um, there's a debate that happened recently between uh, Greg Lemon or Lehman uh, and Andrew Locke. So if they if they if they YouTube Greg G R E G space uh, Lemon L E H M A N and uh, low back pain. Um, they can they can they can see a nice debate on lifting technique and low back pain specifically, uh, where you know there, there's a well, I mean there's more than just a discussion to a freak show, uh, but there's there, there are some nice points made by by Greg on lifting technique and how much it actually um, affects low back pain and low back injuries. Um, but I want to say that a minimum effective training dose approach may may and this is not said with certainty may be beneficial for injuries um, in the context of, um, you know, still making progress while having limited uh, recovery resources available. But if as a power lifter, you know, the studies that we did were all very heavy load studies that were very low in volume, but they still utilized, uh, you know, heavy weights. People are, were doing uh, a single repetitions that were those near maximal. So I wanted to point out that if a lifter is not used to handling heavy weights, jumping, uh, you know, starting a minimum effective dose approach and saying, okay, I read the study by PAC, and now I'm gonna start doing singles and, and, and back offsets to not get injured. They don't have a lot of experience that can potentially backfire. But for, for uh, athletes who are used to handling heavy loads and, you know, they come across a, a period in their life where, um, recovery resources are, are very limited and you know not doing as much volume may be beneficial um, for the training injury for, for, for training related injuries but that said with a lot of caution in terms of the supply and not a lot of certainty for my part so it's not that we studied injuries or whatever but it may be that hey doing one heavy set instead of five heavy sets uh, might make things might make it less likely that you get injured but in terms of going to supply so i, I don't want to i don't feel comfortable saying a lot about uh training injury and uh, technique as well because it's not um, i mean it is my department from a coaching perspective but still i don't feel that that's sufficient enough for me to comment on how important lifting technique is for injury consistent lifting technique i think is important to avoid injury now, whether it's good, bad, or whatever, I think that's a whole different topic. But again, if you are somebody who's used to lifting heavy loads, as a power lifter, this might potentially, in terms of the supply, make things uh, less stressful for you injury-wise. Um, and, and, and enhance longevity in the sport. That was something that came up um, in the interviews. We did some interviews with coaches and some elite powerlifters as well. And that's something that you mentioned too. They said that I've trained like this to avoid getting injured at times where I couldn't handle more. Um, but yeah, that's that. I, I, I hope I somewhat covered it. Yeah, so I think you're talking about basically uh, knowing your limitations. So if you're a beginner lifter, then you know just focus on the basics, just training regularly, using good technique. And then once you're confident, then looking at something like a minimum effective dose. And then if you're already uh, intermediate or advanced, the minimum uh, effective dose can actually help you reduce the risk of injury because you're, you're, you're going to train within yourself uh, more often. Would that be fair to say? 
Yeah, it's, it's like selecting the type of, of, of minimum dose approach because, um, excuse me, I need to open the window while I talk. The sun has been blasting me for the past 10 minutes. Um, in so there is, it's uh, the National Sunday, apparently. So, <laughs> but yeah, that's a very fair comment when we're back to that weather. But um, it's, it's not that a beginner or, you know, early intermediate cannot train with the minimum dose approach is that if they see this particular paper, which was focused on powerlifters and using heavy load training, using that specific approach may not be ideal. But, you know, the, the literature review of the project, which was published separately as a systematic review and meta-analysis, uh, found that, you know, you can also make progress as a recreational lifter using sets of six to 12 repetitions um, and potentially not using as heavy loads as the powerlifters in the study. That's, that's where, where, where I was getting at. So if you, you know, if you're somebody who's watching this and you, you read the paper, if you, and you see the singles and all the, the stuff that we use with the powerlifters, it's potentially worth that you, that you try um, an approach like the one seen in the literature review of the project, if you don't have experience in handling uh, such heavy loads, that's all. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Uh, follow the follow the kind of the evidence, really. Follow what's mm -hmm. been done before. Yeah, and also then just keep in mind that the study was done with the elite uh, powerlifters and elite coaches. So uh, just keep that in mind and kind of gauge what you're going to do based on your own experience as well. Yeah. Um, all right, Pac. So this has been amazing. Like you give me uh, so much of your time. Is there anything that we didn't go over? Anything you want to mention? Anything coming up that you're doing? Um, we do have a few projects in the works uh, at the moment uh, um, and potentially some work looking at powerlifters again and and, uh, and potentially bodybuilders and the use of deloads and in, in, in those populations. Um, but no, it's been, it's been a pleasure being on. Uh, I, I enjoyed talking. I like talking a lot, as you probably understood. Uh, thanks for having me. And if anybody wants to reach me, they can do so on, uh, I'm, I'm mostly on Instagram at Polka Rhodes, P-O-L-K-A-R-O-T-S. And if anybody has any questions about our research or whatever, feel free to hit me up. Brilliant. Yeah. Thanks very much. And I'll attach all your info when I, when I post this up, the studies and stuff like that. So uh, if anyone wants to read more, uh, I would recommend anyone interested in strength training, read the study. Um, it's something that you're going to use at some point in your life if you strength train for life, whether you realize it or not. So you might as well learn from the best and read the study. Um, so that is it. Thanks very much, Pac. Thank you.